You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Amen. Hey, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a series that we started several months ago. We've taken a break, and if you don't have a Bible, just look in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, on page 843. And Mark, for us as a church, kind of looms in the background of the last few weeks as a distant friend that we haven't seen for a while. So let me remind you who Mark is and what he has been offering to us through his gospel, he has been going through the events of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we believe by just looking at the vocabulary, we believe by studying church history that it was the Apostle Peter who was telling Mark about these events, encouraging him what to write. And so Mark and Peter have been going through the earthly ministry of Jesus and providing vistas, as it were, national state parks, Showing us lookouts to be able to see specific events and details of Jesus' life that are intended to be weaved together by Mark to communicate to us ways that we can see him accurately, that we can savor him when we see him, and that we can respond the way that Jesus intends for his disciples to respond. Well, in Mark chapter 8, we found ourselves in a a section of the gospel where Jesus has been ministering to the Gentiles, and that is specifically important because he had just been reprimanded by the religious elite from Jerusalem. And the religious elite had come to Jesus and said that his disciples were being flippant about the traditions of what was clean and what was unclean. And and we talked a few weeks ago how traditionalism can be part of our own lives, can it? Traditionalism is where human-made traditions get elevated to a spiritual plane. When the traditions of our lives begin to be established as the standard of right and wrong, or even more tragically, as to whether or not we are truly saved, that is what traditionalism is. And Jesus had some harsh words for that. But Mark and Peter want to weave together the stories that they give in chapters 7 and 8 to be able to highlight the fact that the gospel is not about traditionalism. It is not about the human definitions of clean and unclean. They are clearly about the gospel's definition. And so as we arrive at Mark chapter 8, Jesus is continuing to minister to Gentiles. And even as I read this passage, you might be familiar with the words if you've been with us for the study of Mark. And you might say, well, this sounds a lot like a story we studied just a couple chapters ago, and it very much does. But the details are intended to communicate something more than just what the historical facts are. The details are really supposed to highlight the importance of Jesus' disciples seeing to understand You know, one of my first recollections as a child was standing on the hill behind our family's apartment in my diapers and in my uh, dad's baseball cap from the Minnesota Twins. Don't try to picture that in your mind. But I remember standing at the top of this hill and just running down as a toddler could and then at the bottom of the hill plopping down into a hook slide. 
Now, for those of you who don't know what a hook slide is, it's a, a slide in baseball where you tuck the, the, the foot under the uh, knee of the other leg, and there's a purpose behind it. And so as a toddler, I was just running down the hill, hook sliding, and then running back up, running down the hill and hook sliding, running back up, and I think you get the idea. But the question that I asked myself as I watched this video and as I remembered what that was like as a toddler is, how can a toddler know what a hook slide is, let alone actually do it? And the reason for that is because I had watched my dad and his teammates on TV, the experts of hook sliding as it were, and I saw it, I understood, and I applied it. And as we've been studying the gospel of Mark, as you study all of the gospels, you'll see that Jesus cares very deeply that as we watch him, as we study him, as we study God's word, that we're not just seeing it, but we are seeing to understand. Look at the big idea in your notes. And that is that understanding is the process of seeing and grasping and applying that leads to true joy in all circumstances. And you know, beloved, God has given us the local church to be the place where understanding takes place. We study God's word. Write this down. John 5, 39. That is where Jesus says that we study the word not so that we can understand the facts as the end game. We study God's word so that we can see Christ and understand him. 1 Corinthians 11.1 says that we are to follow the example of godly people in our church because they are following the example of Christ. Ephesians 4.15 says that we do all that we do within the context of the local church to build one another up into the head which is Christ. Beloved, the local church is the community that is intended to give believers what they need to see Christ and understand him. Let me read our passage, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and then we will dive in together. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now these three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This sounds familiar to you, perhaps, because we had just studied a similar story with very similar detail back in Mark chapter 6. 
Some scholars believe this is the same account as Mark chapter 6. It's just that Mark wanted to retell it, providing slightly different details to prove different points. But as we study this passage and as we look at Mark's writing in the gospel, we can say very confidently that this is a second occurrence with similar details and a slightly different application. Let's look first of all. But in order for us to be able to see and understand, we must see reality like Jesus. We must see reality like Jesus. In fact, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples that they need to understand. In fact, Matthew chapter 13, verse 51, after Jesus had given the parable of the sower and the seeds, says to his disciples, do you understand? And when they say that they they do, he says, I want you to make sure that you have kingdom understanding. In fact, let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen of what kingdom understanding is. It is an understanding of the facts that leads to an understanding of meaning expressed in an understanding-driven application. If you want to be able to understand the type of understanding that Jesus wants his disciples to have, then it is this kind of understanding. It is an understanding of the facts that leads to understanding of the meaning. Beloved, that's what we try to do every Sunday here at Ascend is to model the fact that when we study the Bible, we are interested in the facts, but not for the facts as an end game. We are interested in understanding the facts, understanding the historical context, the grammatical words, the biblical theology of the big story, the full bloom aspect of the the mature understanding of the New Testament so that we have that light to shine on the entire Bible. We, We study that so we can come away with the right meaning. And when we have the right meaning, we are not content to leave it there. We we then want to express that understanding of meaning in application. In gospel thinking, speaking, and living. And so when Jesus asks his disciples, do you understand, this is what he's driving at. Understanding begins with seeing reality. Jesus sees, look at verse 2, he says to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. Now why does Jesus have compassion on the crowd. You see the text. He he sees reality. He sees that they have been with him for three days, and and after three days, they're getting hungry. He sees that they have come from a long distance, and he starts to be able to process reality in a way that many of us would, and he says, if they've come from a long ways away, if they've been with me for three days, here are my options. We can just continue, and they're really going to be hungry, I could send them back home, but after that long distance of a journey, they're probably going to faint along the way. And so you see, Jesus sees reality. Now, friend, let me ask you something. Often, we will read the Bible, and we will just run through it as though it's duty, don't we? In fact, I asked you on Instagram, if you saw that video, to read Mark 8, 1 through 10, and you might have read that. But as you read it, you probably just passed through it, and and the initial pass was simply trying to understand the details, but then if you linger a little bit longer, then the human interest side kicks in, doesn't it? And and maybe you've read this story, or maybe you read this story, and you're like me, and you want to problem solve this thing. 
And you're starting to say, okay, wait, Jesus had 12 disciples. He could have sent them out two by two in all the different directions. Maybe they could have grabbed some more food, and you're starting to solve it that way. Maybe others of you, these people I can't relate to, you care very compassionately about people, and you're saying, those poor people, they're far away from home. Many of them are probably poor. There's probably kids and young children in that crowd. Poor, poor people. Then others of you might be kind of critical, and you might be saying, well, how did Jesus let them get to this point? We know that he's been with them for three days. Why didn't he stop at day one and and tell them, go get some food, because we're going to be here for a while? And, And that's often how we approach life's circumstances, is we immediately get caught up in the details of the circumstances, and we begin to have our personality influence that. But beloved, I would say to you that that's often what we do with Scripture, isn't it? We often approach scripture by reading these 10 verses and begin to say, where am I in the story? We begin to say, does this story interest me? We begin to say, do I understand it? And we begin to make value judgments based on our personalities and our own perspective, and that's how we see reality. But friends, Jesus saw reality very differently. He sees reality I would encourage you to write this down so that it sticks theologically. Jesus sees reality theologically. And friends, that's not how we naturally see reality. We naturally see reality from a human perspective. We naturally review reality through personality lenses. But Jesus sees reality. He is not disconnected from reality, but he sees reality theologically. Now, for those of you who might be new to Ascend, for those of you who might be new to the Christian faith, either you're kicking the tires or you might be a a Christian relatively in a short amount of time, let me give you a definition up on the screen of theology. Theology is understanding God through connecting the dots of Scripture in a way that grows your affection for Him and impacts your thinking, speaking, and behavior in a way that glorifies Him. That's a long definition. But I think it's valuable if you write that down, if you take a screenshot of that, because oftentimes we hear the word theology and it's a disconnect. We often think theology is academics. We often think theology is reserved for pastors or professors or people who are really, really mature believers. But beloved, listen, every human being is a theologian. Atheists are theologians. Agnostics are theologians. And what I'm trying to do is encourage us to understand theology from a gospel-centered view. It first of all means that we must understand God through connecting the dots of the Scripture in a way that grows our affection for Him. Some of you might like theology. And when I say the word theology, you might be thinking about your Grudem systematic theology that you bring to bed like a teddy bear. Others of you might come to a church like Ascend and you just cannot wait until the bulletin says, hey, listen, we're going to have a systematic theology or we're going to have a study about Calvinism or we're going to have a a study of historical theology. And you're like, yes, 
But friend, do not forget that theology has the end game of growing our affections for Christ. The end game is not developing spiritual fatheads. The end game is not just being able to define big words that are associated with Scripture. The end game is to grow our affections for Christ that when it does, it overflows and impacting the way that we think and we speak and we live. And that, beloved, is theology. Jesus sees reality theologically. You may say, well, I I just heard you read these verses. How do these verses reveal that Jesus and Mark and Peter saw reality theologically? Look at verse 1. It says, in those days. That is a marker in a narrative to draw the reader's attention to recalibrate context. What days? The days of chapter 7. The days of back in verse 31 when Jesus had made his way to the region of the the Decapolis where there was more Gentiles than there were Jews. The days when Jesus was in the presence of individuals who were ceremonially unclean in the Mosaic law. Mark wants us to recalibrate our understanding of the context that Jesus is in the presence of those who are traditionally and physically, in the eyes of the Jews, unclean. But then he also wants to remind us in verse 1, it says, when again a great crowd. I would invite you to underline that, to draw your attention, to emphasize that phrase, because this is not just Mark throwing in some words that advance the narrative, because the last time great crowd was used was back in Mark 6, 34. And so Mark is using this phrase that the original audience would have heard this phrase again and said, okay, the last time he used this was in a similar story when the people were gathered, they were hungry, and there was no food. Jesus, verse 2, says, I have compassion on the crowd, but I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 3. Oh, would you look at this, please? It says, some of them have come from far away. And again, that phrase might look to you like, and it sure did to me, that that just means he's talking about distance. But let me me give you a couple examples that move us beyond the distance understanding. In, In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I'll give you a couple of passages. You can look at these later. Deuteronomy 28, 49. Deuteronomy 29, 22. And Joshua 9, 6, and 9. This very same phrase is used to describe the Gentile nations. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, there's a phrase, you you who are far off, describing the Gentiles. Paul uses this in Ephesians 2.17 to describe Gentiles as being those who are far away. And so Jesus is reminding the readers, Peter and Mark are reminding the readers that these are Gentiles by using the phrase far away. I think that's fascinating because what Jesus is doing is he's seeing the circumstances through the lens of his gospel redemptive plan. And friend, that's so important for us is that if we could just pause when we see the circumstances of our lives, when you get that flat tire, when you get that unexpected bill, 
When you walk out into your yard like we did a few months ago and there are shingles on the yard and you're hoping that it's your neighbors and you realize that it's not. When you experience life circumstances, the example of Jesus is to not disconnect yourself from those circumstances, but to see them with theological lenses. To understand as we are a long distance from our destination, to be reminded of the long distance that we actually have in our spiritual souls between where we are on our own and where we need to be in Christ. Those words, those analogies, that figurative understanding is intended to be communicated through Mark, through Peter, and through Jesus, that we are to see reality like Jesus. Friends, this is more than a story of people who are hungry, needing food, if you have eyes to see it. Which brings us to number two. You want to have gospel-centered understanding that we need to understand reality like Jesus. Understand reality like Jesus. And before we move to verse four, I think sometimes when I'm preaching the word, you might come away from maybe like a point one and say, I would never see that in the text. And what I want to do at this point, before we dig into verse 4, is just remind you that this seeing takes work. Seeing takes work. Seeing, equipping our eyes to be able to see with theological lenses. Being able to see beyond the words that are in the text to make the connections and see God's character. To see the human heart and know how we are to respond to that. It takes time. It takes repetition. Because after all, the key to understanding is repetition. And repetition is the key to understanding. I'll have the team put that up on the screen. The key to learning and understanding is repetition. And repetition is the key to understanding. While we laugh, I hope this visual is actually impactful for us. Friends, as we approach understanding, remember this is more than just acknowledging the facts. So as we look at verses 4 and 5, where do we see the importance of understanding to Jesus? Look at verse 5. It says, he asked them. Now that just looks like a normal phrase, doesn't it? And it is a normal phrase. If you've been reading the Gospels, you will see over and over that Jesus asks the disciples. He asks the crowds. He asks the religious leaders. And it sure appears that this is just a simple phrase, but it's more than that in the original language. And beloved, listen, we can read the Bible in English and get everything that we need to know from God through his Holy Spirit, through studying it in English. But, but if you want to see it in a, a richer context, study the original languages. And, and for those of you who care about this, this verb is in the imperfect tense. Why is that important? Because it denotes repetition. And so when you see this phrase, and it says that he asked the disciples, he's asking them repeatedly. He's going to Peter and saying, how many loaves? James, how many loaves? Andrew, how many loaves? John, how many loaves? I'm not going to do it for all 12. But the point is, is he's repeating the question for the purpose of understanding How many loaves seems to be the most important question. You know, through the years, my, my girls have asked me for help on their homework. 
Now, a lot more earlier in their school careers because they thought dad was so smart and now they realize not so much. Earlier in their academic careers, it was more because their subjects were usually things I could wrap my head around. But now as my girls are getting into the upper levels of high school, I'm reminded why I did not become a mathematician. And so the other day, my my one daughter was going through conversions, and I could tell she was getting frustrated. And and usually as a dad, I try to be careful when my girls are getting frustrated. I don't always understand the feminine psyche. But in this particular case, I'm like, okay, I'm going to venture into these waters, and I'm going to ask a question. Do you understand? No, Dad, I don't understand. She was very respectful. And so as I'm looking at it, I'm starting to clear off the cobwebs, and I start to realize, I I think I understand this. And so I asked her a specific question, and her response was, no, Dad, Dad, you just don't get it. So I asked her the same question. No, Dad, well, so I asked her the same question. Uh, Okay, I'll try it. Ah, I get it. See, repetition in that particular case led to understanding. But what's happening for the disciples, as Mark 8 will continue to reveal, is that repetition in their case is not leading to understanding because look at the question in verse 8. His disciples answered them. Listen to what it literally says in the original language. It says in the original language, how does anyone have the power to satisfy people in the wilderness? Did you get the importance of the original language? The the disciples say, how does anyone have the power to satisfy people in the wilderness? What? Listen to these verses that we've already studied. Mark chapter 5, verse 41. Even the wind and the sea obey this man. Chapter 6, verse 41, he said to the little girl who was dead, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, rise up and walk. Chapter 6, verse 51, after Jesus had walked on the water, the disciples were utterly astounded. And then, how about chapter 6, verses 42 through 44, when there were people in the wilderness having nothing to eat and they were fully satisfied by Jesus, and they're asking, how can anyone have the power to satisfy people in the wilderness? Beloved, how many times in our lives has God showed himself to have the power to satisfy us in our wilderness, and yet we find ourselves in similar circumstances, and we ask, like the disciples did, how can anyone have the power? The disciples, beloved, find themselves in a place of repetition, but not understanding. You know, in our small groups, we often go around and we ask the question of people, how can I pray for you? And often people will respond by some need that they have in their lives, which is a valid request. But friends, I think we would do well to follow the example of Jesus with his disciples to press in on this understanding thing and that as we say we will pray for somebody, also ask that person, are there any circumstances of your past that might inform your expectations of God in these circumstances? 
Any provision by God in the past that would inform you of his character to prepare you for what he might have for you in these circumstances. And in this particular passage, Mark once again provides us words that are intended to reveal patterns of Scripture. Look at verse 4. It says, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place, literally in this wilderness? What's interesting about this word is that it is actually an even more barren wilderness than where we found in Mark chapter 6. Then in verse 4, they say, how can anyone feed these people in the wilderness? How can anyone satisfy these people in the wilderness? And then they choose to say, bread. If you've studied the Bible, do you ever remember an experience in the Old Testament where people were in the wilderness, very hungry, and they needed bread and were provided it by God? Exodus chapter 16, the manna in the wilderness. Friends, this is intended to point us to the substance of Christ. In fact, would you turn over to John chapter 6? I want you to see this in a similar teaching of Jesus coming out of the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 31, we see what Jesus is doing is using the physical feeding of bread to teach a spiritual truth. And beloved, listen, as you're turning there, this is one way that we can really well understand the Old Testament. This is another way that we can understand the stories of Scripture, that the stories of Scripture are always intended to point us beyond the details of the physical. Those are the shadow. The stories of the Bible are the shadow that are always pointing us to the substance. That's why in Luke chapter 24, when the the disciples were on the road to Emmaus and and they were asking Jesus about the, the, the details of the historical event that had just taken place, Jesus moved them beyond those details to the spiritual reality of the substance that is found in Christ. So in John chapter 6, there were physical details of an historical event. But Jesus was pointing them to the fact that the physical details of this historical event are intended to point them to spiritual truths. Listen to verse 31. The religious leaders say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave from you the bread from heaven, but my father, he gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life into the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Beloved, what I'm trying to do here is is model to you how we interpret Scripture. But what I'm also trying to do is encourage you to interpret life's circumstances in a similar fashion, that the details of Scripture, the circumstances of our lives, are always intended to move us beyond the horizontal to the vertical. And friend, when you get to that place in your life, when you get to that place in your study of Scripture, you're able to actually understand the way that Jesus understands. This is intended to point us to the truths that Solomon Ecclesiastes was intending us to understand. That the feeding of the physical, the circumstances of the horizontal, 
are intended to grow our affections for Christ and rely on him. This repetition in the lives of the disciples in Mark chapter 8, even in his asking repetitiously, how many loaves do you have is intended to move them beyond seeing to understanding. Which brings us to number three, enjoy reality through Jesus. Enjoy reality through Jesus. Put yourselves in the sandals of the crowd in this story. I mean, by day three, no matter how much they had packed of food, they, they did not have enough, and their stomachs were growling. They're, they're kind of getting, you know, they're, they're low blood sugar. They're, they're listening to the rabbi. They're, they're loving it. I mean, you're sitting in the sermon, and you're saying, okay, I, I don't want him to stop. Probably not right now. But, but you're also hungry. And that's what the crowd was experiencing. And so you can see that Jesus stops his teaching. He goes over and he talks to his TAs, his teacher assistant disciples. And the crowd is watching this, probably thinking, okay, what is he doing? And then they come together kind of like a huddle probably. And then they break. Team, Jesus. And then they start distributing something. And and you're probably sitting toward the back because you're Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're you're sitting in the back and you're noticing that something is being handed out. And you're starting to to look over people's shoulders. And you're starting to hear amazement in the crowd headed your way. And then then the baskets are handed down toward you. And you're realizing, hey, not only is there bread, there's also protein. I mean, this is awesome. And not only is there a little snack for you, you're able to eat until the verb actually means to be fully satisfied in verse 8. Not only are you fully satisfied, but there are seven baskets filled with the leftovers. Which, by the way, again, words matter. They're interesting. Verse 8, it says baskets. Same word is found in Acts chapter 9, verse 25. That basket was able to hold the grown Paul, the Apostle Paul. It just gives you a visual of the history and how significant this is. In fact, it also says that 4,000 people were fed. The fact that it doesn't say beside women and children probably means this is more literally 4,000 people. Maybe the disciples had gotten better at numbering people from the 5,000 household unit estimate in Mark chapter 6 and now 4,000 people almost to the head. But significantly, this is a massive group. And so it says that the people ate, verse 8, and were satisfied, and the leftovers were put in seven baskets, and there were 4,000 people. Jesus sends them away. He gets in a boat with his disciples, and they, they row to the, the western shore. What an enjoyable circumstance. Of course, eating and enjoyment draws me back to the closest side the closest point to heaven, this side of eternity, and that's Lou Malnati's deep dish pizza in Chicago. There is nothing like having a dinner at Lou Malnati's. Now, eating a frozen Lou Malnati's, huge blessing. Eating it to go is an even better blessing, but coming into the restaurant, let me just paint a picture for you. You walk in, and the smell... I mean, it just is enough to just nearly knock you to your knees in worship. (laughs) Not, not Not of the chef, but of the creator. 
and you're walking in and you're seeing the, the waiting staff just carry the, the pies to the table and you're like, I, I want one of those. And so you wait for your name to be called and finally they, they call your name and you go to your table and you're saying, I don't even need a menu. I need a large deep dish pepperoni, bring it. And you're just praying as it comes that you'll be able to be sustained in your low blood sugar. And then finally, the moment comes, it's your turn. My mouth is watering right now. <laughs> and, and the waiter brings it in those, those cast iron skillets and, and it's just enough to hold all of that goodness and she distributes one per person and as she does, the, the cheese just hangs on like a web back to the skillet and you're like, no, 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 I want that. And she puts it on your plate and you know that it is right and, you, you des- and he deserves it to pray, but that is necessary before you can enjoy it. And as you take that first bite and the, the texture and the taste all hit your palate at the moment, it's like ratatouille with the chef who's undercover that just grabs the, grabs the, the, the tablecloth and closes his eyes and look, mm-hmm, that's the experience. And then the experience continues as you eat a second piece And maybe a third, but then you start to remember that you are on this side of eternity and your stomach begins to feel very full. And you are reminded that you are gluten intolerant. (laughs) And you throw in the white flag, realizing that if you take another bite, there's going to be a mess. Don't imagine that. You pack up the leftovers because you do not want to missteward what God has entrusted you. <laughs> you take it home. You have a good night's sleep, although you probably get up a few times. And then the next day, something very interesting happens. Your stomach growls. You are confronted with your need for food. And unless you're Jeff Terrell, pretty much everybody else in the household passes by the Lumalnati's leftovers. They choose something else because it's more desirable. They choose something else because they realize the impact that that pizza had had on their GI system. But beloved, that is an enjoyment of a consumer. And I think unfortunately we come to church, the gospel, and the things of God just like we do to Lumalnati's. We enjoy the smells. We enjoy the anticipation of expectation. We have a great experience, but when we have it, it's over and we move on. Beloved, that is not the enjoyment that the gospel offers. The gospel offers what is found in verse 8, a satisfaction that overflows, but it is not a satisfaction of a consumer. How can I argue this from the text? Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. The point of this dinner, the point of Mark chapter 6 and the dinner there is that Jesus offers true satisfaction through the gospel. Let me show that to you right here in the text. There's there's actually a, a past, a present, and a future view of the gospel contained in this text. I've already alluded to this, but he looks back on the salvation gospel narrative by reminding the readers of the manna in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16. 
But, but the manna in the wilderness, as Jesus had taught in John chapter 6, was never intended to satisfy every craving of their hearts. It was never intended to be the food that never made them physically hungry. It was intended to be a shadow that pointed them to the true satisfaction in life. In fact, you can look at this later. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 12. God has placed eternity in every human heart. He has placed a, a, a natural longing for the things that extend beyond this horizontal. You know, it's funny, my, my girls are going out tonight with some friends. And, and I haven't told them this, but I am looking forward to being at the house by myself because I'm going to knock out several weeks of games on MLB The Show 21. It's a video game for those of you who don't know. And I've created myself, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the minor leagues. That's, that's poetic justice, isn't it? But I'm, going to, I'm planning on playing that unless something changes, and I'm anticipating being satisfied by that. But guess what? It won't satisfy Food doesn't satisfy, relational status doesn't satisfy, promotions at work do not satisfy, the next bump of salary does not satisfy. None of this that the horizontal offers satisfies. And this dinner, looking back on the manna in the wilderness, is intended to remind us of that, that it is the gospel that satisfies. So there is a past view of the gospel, but there's also a present view. Look at verse 6. It says there is bread that is broken, for which is given thanks. In fact, this word thanks is actually eucharisteo in the original language, which reminds us of the English word eucharist. And I think it is not unintentional that these words find themselves in this passage because as we look at the Lord's Supper, we see that Jesus gave thanks. He broke bread. And so I think Mark is intentionally providing this for his original audience who is learning about the Lord's table, who is doing and observing the Lord's table on a regular basis to remind them of the present reality of the gospel. And beloved, this is your opportunity. Is there a present reality of the gospel in your lives? Have you surrendered your life to Christ and experienced, like we sang a few moments ago, the ransom being paid for your soul? Have you experienced the transformation of the inside out that no longer do you have an ultimate appetite for the things of the world? No matter, no longer are you led by your own passions and your own desires that always leave you empty. No longer are you enslaved to your sin. You have been set free in Christ. You've experienced true satisfaction or at least the beginning of that realization. Is there anyone here today who has not received that? If that's you, beloved, please experience the present reality of the gospel in your lives and begin to understand what true satisfaction is. But then there's a future view of the gospel. It's hard to see in the English, but it is there in the original. Look at verse 6. It says that Jesus told the crowd, sit down. The verb literally means, in the rest of the New Testament, recline at table. Anytime we see recline at table, there is an expectation of a feast. 
want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 25. If you don't have, if you've grabbed one of those Bibles in front of you, this is on page 586. But Isaiah 25 is a passage that would have been very familiar to this original audience. Remember, we've talked as we've studied the gospel of Mark that these are Gentiles to whom Mark is reading, but they are very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They are very familiar with the the Jewish culture and and Jewish tradition. And so I I believe that this original audience would have heard recline at table, heard about a supper, a a feast, and they would have known these are Gentiles. We just read this a couple chapters ago of Jews doing this, and their eyes and their thoughts would have been drawn back to Isaiah 25. Listen to this. On this mountain, Isaiah writes, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, listen to that, for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Listen to this. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What does that sound like? Doesn't it sound like Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, where the Lord says, My dwelling place of God is with man. I will be their people, and they will, I will be their God. They will be my people, and I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. It sounds a lot like that because it's describing that. The day that Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says there will be representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the people of God identified not by ethnicity, not by gender, not by social status, but by faith in Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus actually alludes to that in Luke chapter 13, verse 29, where he says people will come from east and west to recline at table. Same verb. One more quote to put up on the screen. And friends, I would encourage us to not only see this, but to understand it, and then to enjoy the reality that is found in this. Everything the horizontal offers satisfies what we think we want only for a while. Have you lived long enough and had eyes to see this and agree? But... The gospel satisfies what we really want forever. Oh, I wish that I was the most eloquent orator. I wish I was such an effective preacher that I will have unpacked this so vividly that we can't help but see it, understand it, and respond. But to the degree that it has been a clear explanation of Scripture, may the Holy Spirit use it in your life and mind to elicit understanding. You know, as a toddler doing a hook slide, I didn't fully understand what a hook slide was. 
I learned about it as I got older, as I continued to learn and grow in my understanding that a hook slide is not just for show. It's intended to perfect, protect your hands. It's intended to allow you to pop up when you hit the base. It's intended to be able to allow you to break up a double play. But listen, even when I did it in professional baseball, it wasn't the ultimate expression of understanding. The ultimate expression of understanding was when I was able to teach young players and they were able to do it well. And beloved, in that explanation, I remind us of the mission of our church to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to God's glory.